Last Sunday, we began our journey through the Gospel of John, and we began our journey beginning in the beginning with John's prologue. And as we read through John's prologue, it feels a bit like when we're in that section of of John, we're soaring through the clouds. We're 50,000 feet up in the air in this beautiful, majestic mountain peak of Scripture. One commentator I read last week likened that prologue to what he said was like an overture of an opera. And when you open John's gospel and begin reading it, you you see that. It's stunning. It's poetic. It's a masterpiece. If you weren't here, I encourage you to, at some point this week, just open up John and and let those verses just uh, ring out over you. What we saw last week reminded us of some basic truths. And these are basic, but these are life-giving, especially if we can grab hold of them and if they can grab hold of us. And these truths are that in Christ, God has revealed himself to us, his very self. And God has revealed himself to us in Christ, we saw last week, so that we would perceive God, know what he's like, that we would believe in him and that by believing have life in his name and that we would receive from God. Receive from this great God his great grace and his great truth, not as an idea, not as a thing, but in a, in a real person. The word who became flesh, John wrote. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So we ended last week uh, soaring through the clouds of grace upon grace, truth upon truth, and this morning we slam into the ground, the hard ground, hard reality of what it's like to be a witness of Christ. And as we look at our text this morning, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28, we are invited to consider the hard reality of some hard questions that come at witnesses of Jesus that force us to ask some hard questions about our witness. Last week, if you were with us, our new director of outreach, Matt Yee, was introduced during announcements. And in about 30 seconds, off the cuff, unscripted, Matt Yee preached a little sermon to us last week, and he said something like this. He said, what we have here on Sundays is sweet and amazing and wonderful, our worship, our time together. You might have heard him say this. And he said, but our real power as a church is not found when we gather, but when we what? Scatter. You remember it. It's amazing. I preached last week for 30 minutes. Matt Yee preached for 30 seconds. And I think his sermon was better than mine. It's the last time I ever asked Matt to make an announcement. (laughs) So this morning, we actually start to get at the reality of the witness of the church scattered. The prologue last week was a wonderful worship service. It's sweet. It's beautiful. It's majestic. And I'm a big proponent of worship services. We need worship services, but we can't live there. We don't all live here. The alarm clock is going to go off tomorrow morning. And school is going to beckon. Work is going to beckon. Real life is going to beckon. We go back to real life. And John, the disciple, the author of this book, brings us down to earth to the Monday morning reality of being a witness 
to Jesus, that glorious Jesus that we heard about last week, how we can be real witnesses of the real Jesus in our real life. And John, the author, gets us there in the testimony of John the Baptist. So that's where we are this morning. Turn there with me, if you'd like, to John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. Brought down to the ground, down to earth, down to real life now in the testimony of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So here we have John the Baptist. He's preaching, baptizing, ministering in a town called Bethany on the banks of the Jordan River, the author tells us. When a small group of priests and Levites come to interrogate him, they've been sent to interrogate John by the religious establishment, by the Jews. But specifically, verse 24 tells us, they've been sent by a Jewish party, a subset of the Jews called the Pharisees. We'll hear about these Pharisees more as we go through John. So who are these Pharisees exactly? The Pharisees were Jews who took the law of God very seriously, and they took the law of God so seriously that they had continued to build upon it, to add to it their own customs and rules and regulations and traditions. So as culture changed, a new custom, a new rule to ensure the keeping of the law, to ensure purity, with a new situation, a new um, advancement in technology or in agriculture, a new custom, a new tradition, a new rule that's nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. But they've made it up in order to keep the Old Testament law. So we'll get to this eventually. More on the Pharisees later. I know you can't wait. But let me just say this about the Pharisees. That one of the problems with them was their misplaced zeal. And we see seeds of it this morning in our text, which is why I'm highlighting it. Their zeal that individuals would perfectly adhere to the law blinded them to the individual who was in their very midst as the one who would fulfill the law. So it's that group, that well-meaning group of Pharisees that send priests and Levites, an interrogation party, to meet John the Baptist in Bethany. They call his secretary. They set up an appointment at the local coffee shop. Dad joke warning here. Is that okay? Can I do a dad joke? Is that okay? Since John was baptizing people, maybe they met at Dunkin' Donuts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So they hit him in verse 19. They meet with him and they they hit him in verse 19 with this question. Here it comes. Who are you? So clearly we're not soaring through the clouds anymore. We're not in that wonderful worship service anymore. We're in real life. We've been called into the office. We've been put on the spot by a neighbor. We weren't prepared for this. We didn't see it coming. Who are you? And as I said earlier, this question forces anyone who claims to be a witness of Jesus, whether your name is John the Baptist or whether your name is Jamie Brown, it forces all of us who claim to be a witness of Jesus to take a hard look at our witness. So let's start there. 
with the ultimate question. We see here as we go through our text, it's asked several times in several different ways by the interrogators. This whole scene that we have in front of us probably unfolded in less than 30 seconds. And it feels almost like a tennis match. It's interesting. The question is asked. The question is answered. It's asked again. It's answered again. And you can feel it getting more intense with each hit. The, the intensity is rising. Let's pick up at the end of verse 19 once more. So they asked him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Okay? They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? No. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. It's, get, it's getting more intense here. So they said to him, who are you? We have to give an answer to those who sent us. And then what a question here is presented to John. What would you say? This was asked of you. What do you say about yourself? So this is the first time, but not the last time, that a sort of trial plays out on the pages of John. We can think about this scene like this, like a trial. John suddenly, without warning, is on the witness stand. He's under questioning by the prosecution. He didn't wake up that morning preparing for this conversation, but it hit him. And we'll see this kind of dynamic play out often in this gospel. Sometimes they interrogate Jesus. Sometimes they interrogate his disciples. Sometimes they interrogate someone that he just healed or that he just raised from the dead. There's a rude awakening. <laughs> I did not even mean that one. You guys caught that one before I did. That's, wow, good job. So there's this theme here of trial and witness, prosecution and interrogation throughout this book. And newsflash, this theme also continues throughout world history for believers, for witnesses of Jesus Christ. This theme runs throughout church history, and it continues to today. The days when we wake up, we didn't know it was coming, all of a sudden we find ourselves being interrogated somehow as a witness of Jesus. Underneath all of the questioning of witnesses, though, is one ultimate question, which is, who are you? What do you say about yourself? What's the deal with you? What exactly drives you? What's your motivation? I've noticed this about you, believer. I've noticed this about you, Christian. What is it about you? And what this question reveals in the hearts of the seekers, when a seeker asks this question of a believer, what it reveals in their heart is ultimately a desperation for Jesus. That's what it reveals. So the Jews and the Pharisee party and the priests and the Levites that were on this mission were all truly looking for a savior. There's a depth to their question that we can perceive and that is still true today. Notice the depth of their questioning that they either realized or didn't realize, but they obviously knew the Torah and they knew the prophets. They had read verses like this one in Deuteronomy 18, which says from Moses, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. There's a depth to their question. They had read passages like Malachi 4-5 in the Old Testament. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. These are well-informed questions. It's one of the things I always respected so much about Tim Keller. He was a pastor, author, theologian, teacher in New York City. He was in such a hostile climate. And the questions that would come at him were often so pointed and so uh, hostile. And yet he had such a respect for the heart underneath the question. He could see that underneath this hostile question, underneath this pointed prosecution, is a beautiful desperation for Jesus. And John the Baptist sees that. Sadly, we know the story here in the Gospel of John. We know the story that many of these seekers who knew their Torah so well, who knew the prophets so well, were blind to the very one in their very midst who was the fulfillment of of Deuteronomy's prophecy and Malachi's prophecy. And this sadness is heartbreaking. This blindness is heartbreaking. And we still see it today. But it's important for us. Here's what I want to point out here. It's important for us to know the same thing John the Baptist knew, which is this. At the heart of those questions lies the ultimate need of the questioner, which is a need for a savior. Times have changed since the Gospel of John was written. 2,000 years have passed since this scene that plays out for us here. But human hearts have not changed at all. The hearts of seekers have not changed, whether it was there in Bethany on the banks of the Jordan or whether it's here in Fairfax or in downtown Washington, D.C. We're all looking somewhere for a savior. One of the common pieces of preaching advice that most veteran preachers give is to never use sports analogies. Because as the advice goes, at least, the minute you start using a sports analogy, you immediately alienate, alienate over half of your listeners. But I think the people who gave that advice have never preached in the market of the mighty Washington commanders. <laughs> we can all remember what we've read about the glory days of the past, right? Joe Gibbs... RFK Stadium, Super Bowl victories, the Burgundy and Gold. And we've all come out of now what's being referred to in the past as the Dan Snyder era, where I think there was one playoff victory in 98 years or something, give or take. (laughs) And now we're putting all of our hopes in the future, a new era, new ownership, a new stadium, maybe another new name, a new quarterback, salvation. It all begins today. Hoping for salvation, hoping for a savior. Somewhere deep down underneath that longing for the Redskins, I'm sorry, for the commanders to finally (laughs) win a game is desperation for a, a salvation. We could all meet here tomorrow and park in the parking lot and walk down 123 to George Mason University, where I read recently this year are 45,000 students registered between Fairfax and Prince William and Arlington and online, 45,000 students at George Mason. And we could interview them all and ask them about themselves and let them ask us questions as, as Christians. And there would be so many different stories and different heartbreaks and different issues, different people, different backgrounds. And yet at the heart of every heart would be the same longing. 
And that same longing is for a savior. So John the Baptist knew that. He's a witness of Jesus, and he's presented with this question out of the blue, this question of seeking. Who are you, John the Baptist? What do you say about yourself? And he, and he answers that ultimate question. He sees the desperation underneath it, and he responds with, and he instructs us with the ultimate answer. First, it's interesting. John answers with who he is not. You see that in verse 20. Who he is not. Quote, I am not the Christ. He doesn't just come out and tell them who he is. He tells them who he's not. So if it's good enough for John the Baptist to answer the question of a seeker in this way, then it's good enough for us. Start with your need. Start with your need. By answering that ultimate question, first with a denial, John the Baptist begins to provide for us, those of us in here who are witnesses of Jesus, with a template for our witness as the church scattered. The world asks who we are. Your neighbor asks who you are. Your boss could tell you're a Christian, kind of pulls you aside, says, what is this about you? Maybe you should start where John the Baptist starts. Here's who I am. I am not Jesus. I need Jesus. Start with your need. Make it rhyme here. Lead with your need. I am not the Savior. I need a Savior. I am not all together. I need to be put together. Something beautiful about our testimony, about our witness, when we start with our need. I am not who you're looking for. Let me point you to the one who you're looking for. That's the difference. A few months ago, Catherine and I, with three of our four kids, went down to Raleigh for a wedding. And when we arrived at the reception that night after the wedding, the DJ tapped me on the shoulder and began talking to me as if I was going to be the MC for the wedding reception. This was news to me. He just came up to me. He called me Andy and proceeded for the next two minutes, I couldn't get a word in, to walk me through the plan for the reception. And I thought to myself, surely he has me mistaken for someone else. But Andy does kind of sound like Jamie when you say it fast. And I thought, he's got to be looking for someone else, but who knows, maybe I missed this email. Maybe I am Andy, after all. (laughs) Maybe I'm having an existential crisis in this moment. Maybe I am supposed to be the MC for this wedding reception. But then out of the corner of my eye, I see another skinny white guy without much hair. (laughs) And I think, I bet that's Andy. What do you know? It was Andy. (laughs) You know what I should have said? Two minutes earlier in that conversation, when the DJ put his arm around me and called me Andy, I should have said, oh, I am not Andy. Let me show you to Andy. (laughs) How much better served the world would be by humble, broken Christians 
If when they come to us seeking, when we're gathered or scattered, we said to them, oh, I am not your savior. Let me show you to the savior. It's John's ultimate answer here. I need Jesus. And then he goes on, I am a witness to Jesus. We see this here when he quotes Isaiah 40, verse three to make his point. Look at me, look with me at John 1, 23. John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The interrogators are upping the ante here. They want to know who he is. Are you Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he never even tells them his name. You see that? He never even answers their question. He never even says, I'm John the Baptist. He doesn't want to take up any of the bandwidth in this conversation from Christ. He doesn't want any share of the glory of Christ. He doesn't want any of the attention on him. So he says, in essence, if you want to identify me as anything in relation to Christ, you can identify me as a voice. And a voice doing what? Calling people to see Jesus. John says, I need Jesus. I am a witness pointing to Jesus. And also, I am unworthy of the grace of Jesus. I'm unworthy of his grace. As they're interrogating him here, trying to get at, by whose authority are you baptizing, John? Why are you doing this? How are you operating in this way? What is driving you, John? What is driving you? He answers them in verse 26. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So there's the top line of John the Baptist's resume. Before all of his education, his degrees, his awards, his accomplishments, they want to know who John the Baptist is and where he might be tempted to puff his chest out a little bit and offer his credentials and his experience. What he says is, I am not even worthy to be a servant of Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of a sandal. And he says, I'm not even worthy that, we would, that I or that we would be graced by his presence. That among you stands one you do not know. I'm unworthy of his grace. And that's where we close today is with that grace of Jesus, of which we are unworthy and which is such good news for all of us because we are all frail, faulty, fickle witnesses of Jesus, even those among us who might call themselves natural evangelists. None of us have what it takes to pass every interrogation or to stay cool under fire or to answer well when we're put on the stand and we weren't prepared and we feel our heart rate increasing. All of us, when we scatter this week as the church, will at some point fail as witnesses of Jesus. We're gonna pray at the end of our service like we do every Sunday. Now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do to love and serve you as what? Faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord.
It's a wonderful prayer, but it's an impossible task apart from Christ and apart from the infilling of the Spirit of Christ. So praise God, there's great hope for us in Christ because Jesus went on trial for us and Jesus was interrogated for us as the ultimate witness. And he never faltered even once. Jesus was subjected to the arrogant questioning of misguided zealots, and he never weaseled out of it like I am so often tempted to weasel out of it. Over and over again, Jesus answered for himself, and good news, as your substitute, he answered for you too. Jesus would be questioned and rejected until his final trial before Pilate, leading to his final and glorious resurrection, which was his final witness. We'll notice this as we go through John in the months and years to come, that in every single case and on every single page, Jesus and Jesus alone bears perfect witness to what he has seen and heard from his father. And we see his father bearing witness to his son. Next week, sneak peek, verse 32. You can look ahead. When the spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, that's the father witnessing about his son. And then after Jesus' resurrection, the father exalts Jesus to the highest place where Jesus now intercedes for us, his witnesses on earth. And then we read in John 14 that Jesus has left his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, who he tells us in that chapter, we'll get there in several years, will take what is his and will witness it to us. In Christ, believer, in Christ, fickle witnesses, we are caught up in this. Praise God. I want to point one last thing out about John, our author, which is that he would write a few other books in the New Testament, the last one of which would be Revelation. And having seen Jesus and walked with Jesus on earth, in that book, he's taken up by the Spirit and is able to see Jesus in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, John greets the church, and that's us, that's us, in the name of, quote, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is the power of the church gathered and Jesus is the power of the church scattered. What we proclaim, just like John the Baptist, is not ourselves, but Christ. Who among us would want our life to be on display? (laughs) Who among us would want our name elevated above all names? None of us. Praise God, we point to Christ. Every desperate question that you encounter, every hostile question that you encounter, every longing that you encounter is ultimately and only met and satisfied in Jesus. 
All we can do is point to him when we're soaring through the clouds in a great worship service like the prologue or when we slam into the ground. Our hope and our power as the church gathered and as the church scattered is in Jesus, the faithful witness. Praise his name. Let's pray and ask for his help. Well, Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for giving us your son and leaving your spirit until the work on earth is done. So, Father, you know our frame. You know how faulty and frail we are as your witnesses. Fill us afresh with your spirit and point us that we may point others to your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.